The Whole Health Cure with Dr. Sharon Berquist, the podcast that brings you inspiration and skills for living a healthy and fulfilled life. Welcome, everyone. Today, we have Dr. Carla Hack, who's an assistant professor at Emory University, a general surgeon, and her research as well as her administrative work is on contemplative practices in medicine. So welcome, Dr. Hack. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you, Sharon. Yes, we're delighted to have you. Um, So general surgeon, and I might add general surgeon extraordinaire, (laughs) and interest in contemplative practices. Now, that's not a very typical thing for a surgeon to be interested in. So I'm going to start by asking you, what is the path that led you towards this road? Thank you for this question. I actually really like answering this question. I love talking about this. So I found yoga when I was in my first year of medical school. And I was in Puerto Rico. There were not a lot of yoga studios in Puerto Rico. And actually, I had a boyfriend who said, you should try yoga. And I had a background in gymnastics and martial arts, and I was good at form and terrible at fighting because I am a lover, not a fighter. I am a peaceful person. And so yoga seemed like a very natural segue. And I bought a book. I had a book. And I tried it at home by myself in my room and felt amazing afterwards. I had this great workout. I was definitely feeling the physical aspects of it, but I felt more calm and more centered and more present. And I got hooked. I, I got hooked on it. And so I found that through my surgical training, the physical practice actually really helped me counteract some of the chronic stressors that I was putting on my body by standing at the OR table for lots and lots of hours. The breath work helped me calm down and respond in a situation where my training taught me that the surgeon is the last person who can lose their cool. So how can I help myself not lose my cool? And I found myself using it more and more and more. And last but not least, yoga is actually a term in Sanskrit that means to join or to yoke. And it actually helps me get better physical control of my body. And that's what surgery actually is. It's being able to use your hands and your body very precisely and very specifically. And so yoga is something that I feel strongly helps me do better at that. That, that's pretty dramatic, especially, you know, there's so many occupations and skills where you really need control, not just, you know, your physical ability, but also of your mind. So this really applies to our listeners, no matter what their occupation, because nobody in any job can, can lose their cool and, um, and, and be successful at what they do. Let me back up. You mentioned you got a book and you self-taught yoga. Yes, but full disclosure, <laughs> I had I had a background of athletics. Again, I was a gymnast most of the time when I was a kid, and then I studied martial arts in college thanks to my mom, who said that if you're going to be small and skinny and female, you probably ought to learn how to defend yourself. And so my mom was pretty adamant that we would learn some self-defense. And so I trained in martial arts all through college, but again did terribly in tournament fighting just because there's a certain level of angst that you have to bring when you're trying to hit people to score points, and that's just not something I carry. So yoga was the perfect solution for me. And you said you got hooked. How long did you do it until you noticed a change in your body? 
This may not be everybody's experience, but I felt different right away. I The very first time I did it, I felt different than after a martial arts practice. I the In being able to compare it to the other physical activities that I engaged in, I noticed that there was a stark difference in terms of how I felt. Now, that may not be right for everybody, again, and in fact, most in the book itself that I had recommended having a teacher and a guide around, and there are things that you should not try at home by yourself, so I want to be very clear about that. Um, but I noticed a difference right away uh, in terms of there's a there's a certain feeling that comes at the end of a practice that I can't necessarily describe, and I would say that the people who have experienced it know what I'm talking about, and I know that there are some people rolling their eyes thinking, oh, this is another one of those people who says that if you don't try it, you don't know what you're talking about. But um, it just felt different. It felt different from martial arts. It felt different from gymnastics. And so I noticed that difference right away. And it's interesting you say that because I think there is this mystique around yoga, like people who are yogis say exactly what you said, that you just it's transformative and you feel different. Um, and then there are the non-yogis who are the people from the outside saying, maybe I should try this. And, and how does this transformation happen? How does it work? What is it about yoga that sets it apart from other exercises that lets you reach these different levels of feeling good? I mean, all exercise is good for you, mm-hmm. but how is this different? I think the the breath, the breath. So um, the breath is the part of your autonomic nervous system or the, the nervous system that controls the body functions that we don't necessarily think of ourselves as having direct control over, right? So let me back up a little bit. So there's your nervous system that tells you to move your right hand or lift your right foot, and that's the part of our nervous system that we think of ourselves as having control over. And then there's a part of our nervous system that controls our heart rate and our blood pressure and the movement of our bowels, which we don't necessarily think of ourselves as having control over. Breathing is something that's going to happen whether you're thinking about it or not, but it's also available for your direct control. You can decide to take a deep breath. And I think the part of it that was so powerful for me was joining the breath with the movement and getting control of my breath and really connecting it to what my body was doing that took that took it from a workout to something much more. Yeah, and, and you said this helped you through the stress of medical school and residency and now life years beyond. Continues to do so, yes. Yeah, and, and how does this kind of tie into the, the Zen in the operating room? You said, you know, <laughs> as a surgeon, you need to have that control in the operating room. How does this tie into that on a daily basis? So... Have you ever read the book House of God? Yes. So take your own pulse first. (laughs) (laughs) It's one of the things that we are taught in medical school and in surgical training as well. And so take a deep breath is something that actually people tell people who are freaking out because it works. Because by taking a deep breath, you create physiological changes in your chest cavity that will actually stimulate your rest and digest part of your nervous system, your parasympathetic part of your nervous system that will actually help bring down your stress response. And so 
when when things get stressful in my room, my anesthesiologist can hear my breathing because I am breathing to calm myself down so that the energy in the room can be what it has to be. If I get frustrated and if I start snapping at people or being impolite or unpleasant, it makes a bad day for everybody and it does not make for good patient care. Whereas if I can get myself under control, remember that we are all here to serve this patient. We are all here to alleviate this patient's suffering. And this patient is really going to be much better served if we're all working together and there is joy in our work and we are here for each other. That changes everything about the patient's experience, but it changes everything about our day as well. So that I get home at the end of the day and I am invigorated and I am happy because of what we've done. Even if we've had a hard day, we've gotten through it together and we've done it with the right guiding principles. You know, as I'm listening to you, I'm visualizing the operating room and just the intensity of something going wrong and how whether you have that calm and composure versus not is, is literally life and death. So that that's incredible. And to be invigorated after a 14, 16 plus hour day um, is, is pretty profound. So this really touches on how can some people work 14 and 16 hours a day, feel invigorated, happy, fulfilled, and why is it that others can do the same and be incredibly unhappy and, and really burnt out, which is a big issue, not just in our profession, but but really across the country. You're exactly right. I would argue that part of it is liking what you do. Part of it is remembering why you do what you do. So before every operation, we do a timeout where we want to make sure that we have the right patient, the right diagnosis, the right side, that we're going to do the right procedure, that we have everything that we need in the room. I actually take that as an opportunity to invite everybody in my room to take a big deep breath in and let it out. So if we're all on the same breath, we're all on the same energy. And I remind us that we're really lucky because we get to come to work and our whole job is to alleviate somebody else's suffering. And the new neuroscience literature will show you that doing something nice for somebody else or alleviating the suffering of somebody who's in pain or in distress is actually one of the things in life that is one of the more powerful stimulators for the pleasure centers of the human brain. People have equated it to chocolate or other things that people really, really enjoy. And in the medical profession, we're really, really lucky that that's the whole point of our job is to alleviate somebody else's suffering. It's really easy to forget that with all the different things that we have to do, and particularly when things are really hard, and particularly when sometimes we can't alleviate the suffering as quickly or easily as we would like to. Remembering that that's why we got out of bed and came to work can make it so that you're invigorated at the end of the day and so that you wake up and you look forward to coming to work as opposed to getting home exhausted and angry and burned out. And so 
reminding ourselves and each other of that, I think, is a really, really important part of what we do. And I would encourage people who are burned out to take a step back and think about why they went into whatever job they happened to go into and to remember that that's what they're actually going after because it's sometimes easy to miss the forest for the trees. I could not agree with you more. This is just such phenomenal advice no matter what situation in life you are because I I echo you. I come to work and I think it's a privilege really to be in a position where we can help people because in the end I think there's such a fundamental human need um, to feel like you've made a difference. And, And, you know, it sounds a little cliche, but I think we're wired genetically, as you mentioned in a lot of clinical studies, Um, where this is how we modulate our stress response. This is how we really turn on our good genes and turn off our bad genes. There's a lot of epigenomics around that. So um, I I think that's just great advice and sometimes counterintuitive that the best way you can help yourself is by helping others. Couldn't agree with you more. And I think that sometimes we blur the distinction between empathy and compassion or we forget what it is and or we just don't even necessarily think about it. And I have to really give a lot of credit to the Emory-Tibet Partnership for teaching me this and for bringing it very much to the forefront in my mind of empathy is feeling someone else's pain. And that's actually how our brains are wired. But sometimes just feeling someone else's pain makes everybody feel pain and doesn't necessarily help anybody move beyond the pain or do whatever it is that you need to do to alleviate the pain. Compassion is different from empathy. Compassion is having a true and sincere desire to alleviate somebody else's suffering or that somebody else be free of their suffering, taking action to do so if it's within your power. But even when it's not, it in no way diminishes the veracity of your desire that that person be free of suffering. And so sometimes the way to do that is by performing an operation. And sometimes an operation is the wrong thing for somebody, but that in no way diminishes my desire to alleviate their suffering. So then I can think about what else I have at my disposal to alleviate their suffering. And sometimes that means sitting on the side of the bed and holding hands. Sometimes that means getting somebody a drink of water. Sometimes that means listening. And if you remember that difference, it can be very transformative and very powerful in terms of helping us alleviate or, or shoulder the burden of some of the things that we carry. Which I think is a phenomenal distinction between empathy and compassion. So that that's very helpful. So for our listeners who want to experience this change to, to be able to have joy in their day, in their work, in their everyday living, and um, to, to feel more compassion, what's a good starting point? Like, how can people begin to, to make these types of changes? I would encourage people to turn inward first. Listen to yourself. What, what made you want to be whatever it is that you are? And if you happen to be in a profession where you may not necessarily be doing what you dreamt of doing when you were a kid, and if it's not necessarily your dream job or if it's a means to an end, then think about that end. Think about what you actually want your life to mean, and then think about how it is that you can make your actions on a day-to-day basis be aligned with that goal. Because it changes everything when you can think about what you're doing as in alignment with a particular goal and it's going to be different for everybody but you have to be able to tune in and figure out what it is for you tuning inward is something that we don't necessarily teach 
in our society. A lot of our education is externally oriented. So even in kindergarten, we learn how to interact externally, how to say please and thank you, what table manners should be around. A lot of our education is around getting a job that lets you make money. And we don't necessarily think about education beyond that, being students of life. So turning inward is actually something that I found facilitated by the yoga practice. It kind of made my body ready for the next step, which is then looking at my own thoughts and looking at my own mind. But for a really long time, people like that were labeled as weird. And practices like that might have gotten some of the worst public relations in the history of the world. (laughs) Starting to do that, starting to make that more in the mainstream, starting to have your doctor tell you that that's part of what you should do, I think is a really, really healthy direction for our society to turn in. Because then we will encourage people to know themselves and know how their minds work. And when you when you get that foundation and you have that knowledge, then you can start thinking about how can I use this most effectively for what I want? Yeah. You know, there are so many ancient practices that, you know, struggle with becoming mainstream, and it speaks a lot to our culture, right, because I can recommend things that I think are heavily based in science, and, and people think i can practice voodoo and it's just a culture difference um so it's an interesting um perspective but speaking of that you know a lot of people heard about yoga in the last decade or two in the western world but there's such a rich history behind an ancient practice like this um how has yoga been used just historically and and how did we get to the point where now it's in every studio (laughs) across the country right um so it's actually a really interesting history and i will i will say that one of the things that's exciting about the moment that we're living is that we have the technology to be able to study some of the claims that have been made for many, many years by practitioners that were written off as voodoo or, or propaganda. Um, and I think that that actually makes it a lot more palatable to people like me who are scientists and, and who work in medicine. And we're, we, t- we like to think of ourselves as being fairly objective. So um, yoga, as we know it, came from India. And it's interesting just because Originally, it was the kind of thing where only mystics did it, only people who were ready to retire from day-to-day life practice it. And I will say freely that this is the way that it was taught to me in my yoga teacher training, so for lack of better evidence, we'll share it as well with you. There was a teacher in yoga named Krishnamacharya, who is the person who was credited with teaching the teachers that brought yoga to the West. So Krishnamacharya was sponsored by the Maharaja of Mysore in the 1920s and 30s, and he taught and he developed the Ashtanga yoga system as we know it now. He taught the guru or the teacher of Ashtanga yoga, a man named Sri Patabi Joyce, uh, when he was a child, when he was very very young. The Ashtanga sequence is the same series of poses every time. It's actually really vast and comprehensive and it is um, one of the criticisms of it is that it's fairly rigid but Patavi learned Ashtanga from Krishnamacharya when he was eight 
And this is a moment in Krishnamacharya's life where he was young and he was very structured in how he taught it. And so he taught it to Patabi this way and Patabi taught it to everybody else this way. And Patabi is one of the people who brought yoga to the West in Ashtanga. And so that's the type of yoga that Sting practices and there's a Madonna started studying when she went on her yoga trip, etc. Krishnamacharya's brother-in-law was a man named Iyengar. And Iyengar was not eight when he started practicing yoga. And so there were things that an eight-year-old body could do that Iyengar couldn't do. And actually there's an anecdote somewhere in the yoga lore where Krishnamacharya told Iyengar to do a certain pose, which was Hanumanasana, which is a split. And Iyengar was like, I can't do that. And Krishnamacharya was like, what do you mean? Just do it. And he did it and he injured himself. And so Iyengar found he saw the benefit of yoga but he founded his own school of teaching which is very alignment based and uses a lot of props and that is another one of the schools of yoga that subsequently came to the west um Later on in life, Krishnamacharya became older and wiser and kept teaching his son Desikachar. And his style of teaching evolved over time, as many most of us do, as is only human. He began to realize that adapting the practice to an individual practitioner's body and situation was much more valuable than trying to shove somebody into a cookie-cutter mold and have people get injured or have people abandon the practice. And so later on in life, his style of teaching became much more adaptive. And that's actually the school of yoga that then comes to us through the Vinny Yoga Institute. Gary Kraftsau is one of his his students that studied with him and, and Desi Kachar in India and subsequently brought it to the West. So those are sort of some of the traditions of yoga, particularly at least in the school that I was taught. And there's all sorts of offshoots of that. So Ashtanga yoga is a yoga practice where it incorporates the breath, the body, the movement, and the gaze point to create a almost moving meditation. Vinyasa yoga, which is a really popular type of yoga that's taught in a lot of types in a lot of studios, borrows from that but makes it a little bit less rigid sort of incorporating different sequences of poses and modifying poses to meet people where they are and then there's just been all sorts of wonderful students of yoga who have sort of taken the concept and and made it given it their own turns and given it their own nuances and made it their own school so that's at least my understanding of the history of yoga coming to the west and um, I think Krishnamacharya was actually quoted at one point in saying that the Western woman would be the salvation of yoga because <laughs> <laughs> we, we've embraced the concept and we've run with it and, and we've told our husbands, hey, you should do this. Your back will feel better and, um, and have given it new life. And it's gone from something that used to only be for the mystics in the Himalayas that would retreat from life to something that people who have jobs and lives and families can use to be better people. Right. It's, yeah, exactly. It's been popularized. Exactly. Um, so, yeah, that that's a great background, and you know, about the history. Um, now, for a person that is thinking about starting yoga, you know, probably the first step is to think, what are your health goals, right? Because mm-hmm. some of them are... Um, more stretch oriented, some are more of an aerobic workout, mm-hmm. and, and some are um, just structured for different goals. 
what type would you recommend for different types of goals? And, and if someone's a beginner, which types should they do versus someone who is advanced and just wants to try something different? So I always tell people to listen to their bodies. And sometimes that it seems simple, but it's easier said than done, right? So in our society, in our profession, we pride ourselves on working through hunger and working through fatigue and working through pain and working through illness. You just summarize the medical profession. Exactly. (laughs) And so we are experts at not listening to our bodies. And in fact, when we work out, we have this no pain, no gain mentality. And we're very results oriented. I'm going to grab my toes and I don't care what I have to do to get them, including if I never walk again. And so that is is probably not the most constructive way to start. I always tell people, listen to your bodies. And so another thing that I tell people when I'm teaching yoga to beginners is yoga is about getting a sensation of a good stretch. Intense is okay, but it should not be painful. And so if you listen to your body, your body is your best teacher in terms of what is right for you and what isn't right for you. There are some people who will need a more aerobic exercise where that requires all of your attention, where if you're not paying all of your attention, you will fall on your face. And that's great for the people who need that. And there are some people who will get injured if they come to it that way. There is a distinction between yoga and yoga therapy, and I want to be very clear about that. So there are people who have medical conditions who shouldn't go to the yoga 101 class at the gym because they may not necessarily get the level of attention that they need in terms of how to make the practice right for their body. And in those situations, I would generally recommend that somebody see a yoga therapist or have a one-on-one session with an experienced instructor who can help that person familiarize themselves with their body and in terms of adjusting and modifying the practice to meet them where they are to make the practice beneficial for them as opposed to potentially harmful. And so I think that The other really, really big thing for me is the breath. So breathing is mandatory. And if you're holding your breath or if you're not able to take a really big, wonderful cleansing breath, you've probably gone too far. And sometimes you'll see people holding their breath and turning bright red, trying to contort into a particular pose. And that's actually the anti-yoga that's actually being violent towards yourself that's putting more emphasis on the result than what's happening to your body right now and so that can be an easier concept to swallow for some rather than for others and and you should be really really honest with yourself and sort of understand where you're coming from and you may start somewhere and find that you need to go in a different direction but if you tune into yourself then you can usually find the right path. And it's interesting to hear the different experiences of yoga. You know, we we tend to use these terms as blanket terms like yoga as all-inclusive, whereas there's so many types. And within each type, there's difference depending on your instructor. So you could have gone to yoga, you know, and yet you, you know, whether you liked it or not could have been dependent on so many variables. So the flip side of finding what is right for you is also not being turned off to what didn't work and maybe giving it another try because 
your experience can just be so varied. Absolutely. And you and in that situation, again, tuning in is so powerful because then you can say, I liked this and this is what put me off. And that may serve as your guide in terms of maybe I should try this versus which may have more of the thing that I liked and less of the thing that I didn't like um, rather than just say, oh, I'm not good at that. Um, I usually tell people that if you're really strong, so in yoga we like to say strong instead of stiff (laughs) because (laughs) strong muscles tend to stretch a little bit less. So if you're really strong, I think that makes you a more efficient yogi because you are able to get that sensation of a nice stretch much quicker than somebody who has to contort to get the same sensation. Mm -hmm. So it's all about the sensation of a good stretch rather than outcome getting into a particular shape and that's also going to help keep you from getting hurt because if you are able to stay on the comfort side of that edge of that line between comfort and discomfort you're a lot less likely to get hurt by it and you're a lot more likely to have a bunch of endorphins circulating at the end of class rather than pain neurotransmitters circulating at the end of the class So when you're in that class, you shouldn't look at the person next to you and think, wait, they can, you know, touch their toes. I can't do it. That that should not matter, even if you don't look the way they do when you're trying to do the same exact pose. Not at all. In fact, most of my yoga teachers that I've really, really liked have encouraged you, don't look around. Don't look around. Don't have a mirror. Don't worry about what it looks like. Worry about how it feels and how easily you're able to breathe. And that should be what guides your practice as opposed to, dang it, that girl can do things that I can't do. I'm not doing this anymore. Or that I'm doing it wrong. I don't look like that person. I don't look like that person. (laughs) Or, oof, does my belly really look like this in this pose? I'm not doing this. Um, And those are some of the downsides of, of having a mirror or looking around the room. Furthermore, it takes you out of your own practice. So part of the thing that makes yoga so powerful, and I had somebody say it to me this way, is yoga is a work in, not a work out. It is an exercise in connecting your mind to your body. And if you want to go out there and say this thing called the spirit, that too. Um, And so you're, you're really turning inwards. And so the physical practice is about knowing Where is that line between comfort and discomfort? And can I breathe through this intense sensation such that it becomes less intense? And if you are able to approach that point, it's very subtle. It's very subtle sometimes. If you're able to uh, turn your attention to your body to the point where you're able to approach that point over and over and over again, you may find that that point then moves. And then you may find that you're able to get your body into shapes that you were not able to when you started the practice. Is there anyone that yoga is not for? So osteoporosis, arthritis, any condition where you would raise caution? I think that you always have to have caution and be well informed. And I think that there are certain practices that may not be for everybody, but one of my teachers said, if you can breathe, you can do yoga. And, but People with, again, certain medical conditions probably need more education and more advice and more guidance around starting a practice so that they can then enter a practice that benefits them and that actually can help treat their condition as opposed to potentially put them at risk for harm. 
Yeah, and as you mentioned before, maybe yoga therapy as opposed to the class at the gym. Absolutely, because there's the class at the gym that may be geared towards people who are just trying to get a workout. And then there's the guidance of somebody who understands the implications of a medical condition. And just to give you a sense for the level of training that a yoga therapist will have versus a regular yoga teacher, you are able to go out and be a yoga teacher I'm a yoga teacher after 200 hours of training and you can get your license, your certification from the Yoga Alliance. To be a yoga therapist, it requires somewhere in the neighborhood of 800 to 1,000 hours of training. Wow. that's a big difference. It's a huge difference. And so even though I am a medical practitioner who has a yoga teacher certification, I am not anywhere near in the same league as a yoga therapist. I hope that that'll be my next certification. <laughs> you'll, it sounds like you'll get there. Um, and how many times a week or month, or how often do you think people need to do yoga to experience the benefits? So that's a really interesting question. And there's some literature out there that would suggest that, well, more is better. <laughs> I would say, though, that start wherever you can and dedicate what you can to it. And so the yoga practice that I started out learning takes me about two hours to get through. I don't have two hours every day to do yoga. I wish I did. Um, And so some days I can only do five minutes and some days I can only do a minute and some days I can do four hours. And so I do try to come to it every day. Um, Why? Because I'm going to get a little bit scientific here, but one of the things that we've learned about how our brains get better at doing things is through repetition. And so we learn every thought we have, every movement we make is the result of a series of neurons in our brains carrying an impulse. When we fire the same series frequently, our brain recognizes that this is something that we want to get better at and so makes that circuit more efficient by wrapping those neurons in myelin, so a process called myelination. If you do something once a year, you're a lot less likely to myelinate that circuit than if you try it every day. And I think that it shouldn't be a chore. It should never feel like, oh, I've got to go to yoga now. But coming to it as often as you can will give you more of a benefit. And so there's literature that shows that heart rate variability is greater in people who practice more yoga than in people who practice less yoga because those circuits will get myelinated and your body will get better at going into that state, if that even makes sense. Well, it does. And, and, you know, for our listeners, also brain scans on people who regularly practice yoga show a different frequency of brain waves over time. Um, So it affects health in so many different levels. And, And as you said, the more you do it, the more you're in the practice, the more you get these changes throughout your body. And, it, and those changes then transcend into other aspects of your health, other aspects of your life. Um, and, and so I think that really summarizes well kind of the science behind the practice and, and how to make that a part of your life. Um, so let me ask you some final thoughts. What advice would you have for our listeners um, just about contemplative practices, about yoga? Um, any final advice that you want to share? Keep an open mind. 
um, some of these things may sound simple, but they are not easy. And so if you struggle at first, that's okay. Um, Yoga, we talked a lot more about the physical aspect of things than perhaps the mental aspect of things. And I'm just going to say briefly that the physical practice can sometimes facilitate the mental aspects of things. And so you may, and there's great science behind that. And we definitely don't have time for that conversation. But be aware of the fact that the more you try it, the easier it will get. Listen to yourself. Do what feels right. And keep trying. I think that's great advice. And I want to thank you for all the work you do in research um, behind the contemplative practices, all the efforts of bringing yoga to us here at Emory. Thank you very much for all that you do to to really promote this for all of us. Thank Thank you. you. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for what you do for all of us as well. I've really enjoyed spending this time with you. The Whole Health Cure is brought to you by the Lifestyle Medicine and Wellness Center at Emory. For more information about wellness assessments, classes, and other resources, please visit our website. This material is copyrighted by Emory University.